Today we're in Luke chapter 13 from verses 1 to 9. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, Jesus, answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that by your spirit, you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. That with the ears of faith, we might hear your voice speaking to us. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Every once in a while, far more often than we'd like, we hear either on the news or through the chatter amongst our peers some report of a tragic death that has occurred. And by that I mean a shocking, catastrophic event of someone dying, not peacefully at home, surrounded by loved ones, but in some sudden, appalling and horrible way that no one could foresee nor would ever want to experience sometimes these kinds of tragedies occur through the hands of evil men uh, as an act of senseless violence and wickedness innocent bystanders going about their daily routine minding their own business but suddenly they become victims of some indiscriminate massacre or act of terrorism just another boring day at the office mr john doe let's say had given his wife and his two children a kiss in the morning before he drove off on his morning commute to his very boring job at the federal building in Oklahoma City where he worked. This is the year 1995. And as he's sipping his coffee at his typical desk job, suddenly a bomb goes off. And the next thing you know, there at his gravesite is a grieving widow with two confused little kids, everyone dressed in black. Horrible, unexpected tragedy brought about by human evil. But no one had any idea it would happen. And other times, such tragedies are what we would call freak accidents, in which there was no human agent morally responsible for the evil, but it's simply just a random catastrophe without rhyme or reason from our vantage point. Natural disasters like hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes suddenly befalling unsuspecting victims. Or it doesn't even have to be something so large and cataclysmic. But it can be something so trivial as being at the wrong place at the wrong time, but with devastating results. You know, I once heard a theology professor many years ago, before I was even in seminary, 
I once heard this professor tell the story of how his dad passed away. And it was while his mom and dad, uh, as husband and wife, were just enjoying a lovely date hiking uh, through some beautiful hills when all of a sudden, of all the different possibilities of timing and exact positioning, it was precisely at that moment, as the dad was walking underneath one of the many trees, that a massive branch finally broke after straining perhaps for days, and it fell right on top of him. And so this beloved husband and father instantly was crushed to death by this 500-pound piece of wood. Freak accident. Nothing you could do to avoid it. Now, when we hear of these various kinds of sudden, shocking tragedies, mass shootings, natural disasters, all kinds of catastrophes, we wonder... What do we make of this? How are we to interpret these kinds of calamities? What is God saying, if anything at all, through these happenings? And well, Jesus tells us actually very plainly. He says to us that whenever you witness these horrible tragedies, don't be so preoccupied with the details of how such and such a person died, what kind of gruesome or unfortunate way in which their lives ended. But rather, focus on the fact that for all of you, your life on earth will also end. It's all the same in the end. And so are you prepared for that day? Are you ready to stand before your maker and judge? Are you right with God, having repented of your sins and been forgiven of them? You see, God ordains for these tragic deaths to occur, not to scare us about what could happen to us, but to remind us all about what will happen to every one of us eventually. These are alarms designed by God to alert us, to pay attention to our own souls, to make us contemplate our own eternal fate after death, so that we might cling to Him for hope and mercy and life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Tragedies are the means by which God frequently rouses and awakens a drowsy world to wake them up to the urgency of heaven and hell before them. And this is what God has always done in every age and generation. We're not the first to hear of such tragedies and wonder these things because evidently these kinds of occurrences were happening in Jesus' day too, 2,000 years ago. Because the passage begins, as we're told that one day, the crowds came up to Jesus and asked him about a certain event that had occurred recently. And it was the talk of the town. Every street corner, every marketplace was filled with gasps and murmurings about this shocking news, which was in verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know exactly which incident they were referring to. Ancient historical records refer to a number of occasions in which Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, had demonstrated to be quite the cruel and vicious ruler. He was notorious for his merciless cruelty. And apparently what Pilate had done on this particular occasion was issue an order for a number of Galilean Jews to be slaughtered while they were offering sacrificial worship, which is why 
the way the report is conveyed is by way of euphemism. Pilate had mixed the blood of sacrifices with the blood of Galileans. It was not just the blood of animals that was spilled on that day at the temple, but also the blood of some Jews from Galilee. Now, why did Pilate do this? We don't know. It's possible that he was looking for an opportunity to punish the Galileans because they were known to be political dissidents. And so perhaps when one of them infringed upon some Roman law, Pilate took that opportunity to uh, exercise the use of uh, disproportionate and uh, ruthless force to inflict bloodshed and put them back in their place, uh, as it were. That's just conjecture. We don't know exactly why Pilate ordered this massacre. But again, it's unsurprising given the kind of man he was and his track record of viciousness. But you can imagine how this shocking news was received by the town, by amongst all the Jewish people. How could he do that to us? Even to do so during our worship at the temple. God, why would you allow this senseless evil to come upon your people? You see, from the Jews' perspective, what they had heard of, this incident of the massacre of the Galileans, it was like us hearing of a mass shooting that occurred during a church worship service, which we've sadly heard a number of such reports in recent years in churches throughout the country. And so for these Jews... So many questions popped up in their minds. Why did this happen? Was that an unfaithful church, as it were? Was God punishing them? Is it because because they had secret sin? What is God trying to tell us through this? And so they brought this question to Jesus, who then answered in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He was saying, Why are you so fixated on how these people died and busying yourself with all your speculations and theories about what kind of people they were and whether or not this was some punishment from God? That's irrelevant in the end. Because don't you know that all of you are set to be punished eternally by God unless you repent? Mind your own business. Jesus was saying, mind your own soul and take this opportunity to consider this, that given the unforeseen tragedy this was, don't you see how it so easily could have been you at the temple at that particular hour when the slaughter occurred? It could have been you going on a nice trip to New York City on September 11, 2001, on that plane. It could have been you that day in 2017. Enjoying a nice vacation, hitting up the buffets in Las Vegas when the bullets started flying. Don't you see all of these incidents have come about so suddenly without any forewarning or announcement? And not a single one of those victims woke up that day imagining that this would happen to them. The point is this. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And so if that's the case... Are you ready today for the day when you will stand before the judgment seat of God? There's nothing more urgent than being reconciled to God. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in the previous passage at the end of chapter 12. 
This is Jesus' loving warning, you see. As horrible as these kinds of calamities may be, they actually serve as whistles of mercy from heaven to jolt us awake. Never mind the victims for a moment. Let the Lord deal with them and tend to them individually. That's not your business. All of these happenings and events, it's, it's not God's commentary on them, but it's God's commentary on everyone on all humanity, how closely death lies at hand, and so how urgent is the need for repentance and life in Christ. And as such, it is actually God's common grace to the world as He sounds the bell of eternity and bids souls to contemplate their end so that sinners might see, might be awakened from their slumber and see their need for His saving grace. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why would he say that? It's it's a greater blessing for our souls to attend a funeral than a wedding. Why? Because he says for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart it's a greater blessing to our souls to attend a funeral than a wedding because our minds and hearts are most sober at a funeral we are made to come to grips with the reality of our own death as we stare at it face to face and those who are wise will take heed and take it to heart And it's in this spirit that whenever violent atrocities occur, we must not get caught up in all the hysteria and panic as everyone else does. And and instead, to learn to receive such news with not only compassion and sympathy, but also with great solemnity and spiritual sobriety for our own souls. We, We need to look past at all the sensational details and the media frenzy surrounding those events, and instead hear through them the chimes of the gates of eternity, which we will all one day have to stand before. And the same goes with how we are to process tragedies of natural disasters. Jesus continues in verse 4 by referring to another contemporary incident. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Siloam was the name of a water supply system in Jerusalem, which is referenced in Isaiah chapter 8, but also it's the pool, the pool of Siloam, where the blind man washed himself in John chapter 9. You might be familiar with that. And apparently there was a tower erected as part of that reservoir system. And one day, a structural failure suddenly led to its collapse. And 18 of the people who were walking by were killed. And again, Jesus says, do you think that those 18 were worse sinners than everyone else in Jerusalem? You think that's why the tower fell on them? No, 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 no. You will all die. Whether it's a tower falling on you, or whether peacefully at home in your bed, 
And what's far more important is to consider what will happen to you after you die. You see, here Jesus is dispelling two common misconceptions. The number one, that when people die from a gruesome tragedy, that it is somehow a sign of God's displeasure on them. It's not true. And that was actually the error of Job's friends, remember? They assumed that because Job was suffering, that God was mad at him, when actually it couldn't be further from the truth. It was the very opposite. God was immensely pleased with Job. In fact, let this be a source of comfort for you, Christian. If you're suffering, if you're experiencing pains and sorrows, it is not because God is cursing you. Because Christ has already redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you, Galatians 3.13. How someone suffers on earth is no indication of God's pleasure or displeasure over them. And the second misconception is that how one's life ends, what kind of death they, they die, has any bearing on that person's eternal welfare and destiny. A man could die quietly in his sleep, in his old age, after having lived a long and fulfilling life as a good citizen, honored and loved by many, remembered by his community, a sweet and peaceful death, picture perfect. But he could wake up on the other side of eternity to a terrifying judgment that awaits him and suffer everlasting misery because he stepped into eternity without a savior and the only friend who can take him there, namely Jesus. But meanwhile, a man may have lived a short life and and ended the whole thing with great affliction and agony and pain, but he could wake up to an eternity of perfect rest and heavenly peace because he fought the good fight of faith and finished the race for the glory of God. And so the only lesson, the only sign from heaven that we are to gather anytime we hear of or witness tragic deaths is simply a reminder to examine our own hearts before God and to contemplate our own ends. That's how God wants us to interpret these tragic events. That's the only thought we are to dwell on. And anything else is foolishness, meaninglessness, and a waste of precious time. I mean, think about this incident of the collapse of the Tower of Siloam. It's a freak accident, isn't it? Now, there's a term that's used in the insurance world for accidents like this. It's called what? Acts of God. And if only we believed our own words more and took heed to the sober reality that such tragedies show us, that God is calling everyone to consider their own souls and their own eternal prospects. You see, the reason why Jesus gives no direct comment on the event that people brought to his attention is not because he's cold and heartless, but it's because he's trying to point out our tendency to always chatter and spend time thinking about other people's deaths rather than our own. Commenting on this passage, J.C. Ryle once wrote this. It says, Consider how much more ready people are to talk of the deaths of others and their own deaths 
The death of the Galileans mentioned here was probably a common subject of conversation in Jerusalem and all Judea. We can well believe that all the circumstances and particulars belonging to it were continually discussed by thousands who never thought of their own latter end. It is just the same in the present day. A murder, a sudden death, a shipwreck, or a railway accident will completely occupy the minds of a neighborhood and be in the mouth of everyone you meet. And yet, these very people dislike talking of their own deaths and their own prospects in the eternal world beyond the grave. Such is human nature in every age, but the state of our own souls should always be our first concern. J.C. Ryle wrote this 150 years ago in England, and it's just as true today in 21st century California. Bay Area. We have no problem discussing how so-and-so died, this or that happened to them. We gasp and murmur and bemoan their tragic end. But why is it that we hardly have a thought of our own end? And if only, if only unconverted souls took a moment to bemoan their own coming death, perhaps heaven would be far more populated because they would run to the refuge of Christ. Look, if you're listening to this and you're a young person, whether you're a child, a teenager, a young adult in your 20s or 30s, do not presume that the day of your death is necessarily far off. I'm not wishing for an early death for you, but you don't know. Do not presume that there is nothing to worry about because you are still young. You do not know when your numbered days are over. You know, many of you know, I, I grew up here in the Tri-Valley. I went to high school here all four years. Between the ages of, what, 14 to 18? And, and the high school that I had attended was a very good public school at the time. High academic uh, performance. Fairly good teachers. I drove some of them nuts. Many of the students came from pretty well-to-do families. There was a general sense of decent morals throughout the populace. And it was a very safe school. Never a bomb threat. Never feared for any imminent danger. No gangs or bloody fistfights. At least, I'm not aware. I never participated in any if there were. And I'm telling you this so that you can understand that this was quite the squeaky clean high school experience. Very safe and uneventful. Yet even so... Within just those four years of high school, three of my classmates died suddenly. They never got to celebrate their 18th birthday. I knew all three of them. I could tell you their names. I talked with them. I sat next to them. I saw them regularly. I joked around with them. And each of them died in different ways at different times. And one of them, whom I knew better than the others, I mean... It was just a sheer freak accident. No one could have imagined it. I mean, it was just jaw-dropping how suddenly he was here one day in class with me, and the next day, it's gone. It took a few weeks for me to wrap my head around the fact of it. 
But again, hearing stories like this, we might be tempted to, to be quick to chatter. Oh, my goodness, what happened? Well, tell me the details. What school was that? I don't want to send my kids there anymore. And bad mojo's there. No, no, no. Things like this ought to remind us how frail we all are. How quickly we all can wither away in an instant, no matter how young or how old we are. And most of all, it should remind us how grateful we ought to be that we've been given yet another day to live. And that if on this very day we have still not repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus for salvation and life, then we should be amazed at the kindness and mercy of God that he has provided yet another day of opportunity to do so and seize that opportunity now while we still have it. And that's what this parable is about in verse 6. It's a parable, an illustration about a fig tree, which if you look in the Old Testament, is often used as a metaphor for Israel. And the parable goes like this, that a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and if I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now that's perfectly reasonable, isn't it? What's the point of keeping this dead fig tree still in the garden? It's sucking up all the nutrients and space. And already it's, it had been given three years to produce fruit. I think I would have given it just one chance, one harvest, and nothing out. But three years already. It's dead inside. Let's just tear the thing out. We see the analogy here. The people of Israel to whom Jesus was preaching, the fig tree, They were not bearing the fruit of repentance. They were not heeding the call to confess their sin and trust in Jesus as their Savior. They had been given ample opportunity to repent and believe. Even through the visible, face-to-face interactions and witness of Jesus' ministry on earth. But clearly, they were not repenting. It was time to cut the loss altogether and cast out this dead tree from the garden of God's presence. But look at this astounding intervention and intercession in verse 8. And he, the gracious vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Just one more year. Let me tend to it. Let me nourish it. Let me cultivate it. Let me fertilize it. Let me throw at it everything good and conducive to life and growth to give yet one more opportunity to bear the fruit of spiritual life. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Patience upon patience, mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. And this is exactly what, the God, what God actually did for the Jews. In the, 20, or in the first century, many and most of these Jews, remember they reviled Jesus and resisted him in unbelief, as we've been witnessing throughout the Gospel of Luke. But even after Jesus' death, even after Jesus' resurrection, they still refused him. But even so, in the vastness of God's grace and mercy and patience, he gave them almost 40 more Years of opportunity, of undeniable witness of divine power and testimony of the truth, beginning with Pentecost until the year 70 AD when God would destroy Jerusalem 
through the hand of the Romans. But throughout that almost 40 years, the body of Christ was growing and thousands upon thousands of Jews and Gentiles were being converted unto Christ. And this was God's merciful testimony to all the believers, showing them the irrefutable power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, and the power of His Spirit to bring the, the, the new birth into the heart of sinners and the truth of the risen Jesus. You see, throughout those early decades of the church, after Jesus rose and ascended on high, God was graciously spreading the fertilizer of apostolic witness and the church's living testimony so that the seed of the gospel truth might take root still with one more opportunity into the hearts of the unbelieving. But sadly, even still, many, most, resisted in unbelief. And so eventually the unbelieving Jews suffer the cataclysmic tragedy of being slaughtered by the Roman Empire in AD 70 as Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed. I mean, it was absolute carnage unspeakable bloodshed as the judgment of God on earth. But far more than that, all who rejected Jesus as the Christ, they stepped into eternity unprepared, unclean, with no answer for their sins, and now having to stand before God and face His righteous judgment. But you see here, God's exceeding Patience makes it clear. There is no excuse for unbelief. There will be no excuse for those who did not heed God's call to repent and believe. His loving warnings, His gracious sirens. No one receives God's judgment unfairly because it is God's righteous judgment. After all that digging and spreading of manure and waiting yet another year, if this tree still doesn't bear a fruit, then the vine dresser will be perfectly just to declare, this one is without a doubt dead for good, permanently, eternally. Cut it down and throw it into the fire. If you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sin, and turn to Jesus for mercy and help. You need to understand that God has been and is continuing to be unimaginably patient with you. But do not presume upon God's patience because there is coming a day of His righteous judgment and you do not want to be undergoing it by yourself, without an advocate. Like you're a sinner before a holy God. Do you understand that? And whether or not you care to believe that now, I swear to you by the word of God that you will be made to believe it when you die and, then, and you realize that you now stand before Him as the righteous judge. And you will die one day. That is a fact. 
And every disaster, every disease, every hurricane, every earthquake, every horrible death you hear of on the local news channel, it is all God's loving warning to you, making you confront the reality of your mortality and reminding you how closely eternity lies at hand. But the good news of His infinite mercy and kindness is this, that God is warning you of it, not to strike fear and panic into your soul, but to call you, to come to Him, to find peace and hope and an answer for all of your sins in His Son, Jesus Christ. Because God so loved the sinful, guilty world that He gave His Son, whom He sent to bear the full weight and punishment of sin on behalf of sinners. He died on the cross as the perfect and sufficient substitute for sinners who could never pay for the sins that they had committed except by their own eternal damnation. But Jesus suffered the eternal wrath of God for all who repent of their sin and trust in the sufficiency of what He has done, that He has paid it all by His life and death and resurrection. And so if you today, if you confess that you are a hopeless sinner before God, and you put your hope and trust in Jesus' saving work, then you will be forgiven of all sin, and you will be declared righteous in His sight, and He will grant to you the hope and gift of eternal life in Him, in His presence, to be in His garden forever, never to be cast out. If you are here and you have not found refuge in Jesus Christ, The fact that you are still breathing right now is in and of itself the evidence of God's mercy and patience to you, calling you to repent and find life in Him. Every quiet breath of yours is yet another gift of opportunity from heaven to lead you to repentance and life in Christ. Please don't wager your precious life on the uncertainty of tomorrow. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe in the grace of the Lord Jesus and turn to Him now by faith. In church, as we close, I know we've talked a lot about death and killing and murder and tragedy, touchy subject people don't like having to face it head on and speak so openly about such things but let's not forget that the reason that we are able to face it head on and talk about it so boldly even so brazenly and to go where many fear to tread It's because death really has lost its sting for us who are in Christ. And we think of how afraid the world is to even dare to imagine what might be waiting for them on the other side of death. And they spend all their lives running away from the thought of it, distracting themselves with the things of life, the pleasures, the fancies. But for all of us who are in Christ, It is out of thrill and glorious anticipation that we can hardly dare to imagine all that awaits us on the other side. The riches of our full inheritance of our Father's kingdom. The day of our own deaths will come. 
It may not be easy. It may not be painless. Our lives, even as believers, may end unexpectedly and in unideal circumstances. But let Jesus' words reassure us that even if we were to perish from this life under the conditions of pain and suffering and illness, even if that were to happen, none of that speaks anything to our eternal destiny and well-being. How we die has not an ounce of bearing on the eternal glory and life that awaits us. Because all that matters is not how we die, beloved, but in whom we die. Namely, into the arms of Christ, who himself will carry us from the wilderness of this fallen world into the garden of his presence forever. Thanks be to Jesus, our deliverer, our hope, our never-failing friend. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the vastness of your love in which you have provided for us our refuge and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have, by your Spirit, awakened us to its reality. But I pray that if there's anyone here who is still asleep, that you would, by your Spirit, Show mercy and grace to them and awaken their eyes, awaken their souls, that they might come now to find themselves hiding in the safety of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the hope of life that is in him. We thank you that he has tasted tasted death for us, that he might defeat it, that we might not have to fear it anymore. And we thank you that all of it came at the cost of his own life given for us. Even as we prepare to now receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by faith, would you use these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup to remind us of the joy and the security of the gospel and the death of our Savior sufficient for us and the hope that we have in him. And so help us by your spirit to receive it in faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.